takes. Get your hot hot takes on Ukraine, baby. Let's go. Hello, we're doing it. Everyone's doing it. Sitting in there. $300 gaming chairs trying to filter information from across the world to get some special insight on an event they know nothing about. You gotta have a take. Here's a take for you. I don't gotta take. I know nothing about this. I don't know anything about geopolitics. I don't know nothing about whether Putin is a rational actor. And I have spent Invasion Month not learning a single thing about it. So when it was suggested that we do a Ukraine episode, I vetoed it. Because the only war that matters, of course, is the culture war. But then it was suggested that we cover the mystical, dark, philosophical entity looming in the background of the Ukraine invasion. And now that makes for an episode. Yeah, That's I love what um, we need. I mean, luckily we're bringing in some more interesting stuff, I think. But uh, but yeah, the debate around Ukraine was kind of funny to see people uh, like want to adopt these different like causal narratives about like why Russia invaded Ukraine. And I always, I don't know, as someone who's in a political science department and, you know, is around people who study international relations, um, it was just interesting to see people all of a sudden, like, adopt, like, IR realist perspectives to say that, oh, like, you know, yeah. because of NATO expansionism and all this stuff and, and, and people saying things like, oh, NATO expansion caused... And it's like anytime people talk about causal links, I, I mean, political science is a dismal science. Like there's no, <laughs> there's no, there is, there is no like ascription of like a definitive causal connection. There are many compounding factors. And if you talk to any honest political scientist, they'll tell you that. But there's just a lot of, a lot of confidence uh, about like what caused what. And, and it's, it was just funny to me to, to see people make definitive statements about something that ultimately... It is the nature of such social political phenomena. I don't really think it's possible to make a definitive causal statement. So, Indeed, indeed. And of course, there is an army of armchair experts. I guess we're singing with the choir today. We've got our armchair psychologists telling us whether or not Putin is sane, um, what he expected to come from this, how his career as a spy informs his decision-making processes, we have armchair generals predicting the next move of Russian forces. We have armchair insurrectionists telling Ukrainians who probably have better things to do, let's be honest, how to make anti-tank mines out of old toasters or whatever. And now you have us, your armchair intellectuals who are about to tell you why this really happened. It's because philosophy it's because hegel is bad that's why. and then we and you also get and you also get the delightful tankies who who are coming out and, and being apologists for putin ah uh, yes the tankies um, defending that great communist leader yeah the great putin. communist the great communist putin um it's so funny too to see people uh like the edgelords have like little i mean first of all there's we were just before we started recording talking about zombies we've got like the zombies with the ukraine flag in their twitter bio and then we've got the edgelords <laughs> with the russian flag in their fucking twitter bio bios yeah i guess you could say you know the the it's multi-causal this this isn't a single cause incident that's that's the problem right everybody wants to simplify it to a single cause but you know 
Remember back to learning about World War One, right? The uh, Black Hand assassinating the Archduke was exactly. okay. The spark that lit the powder keg, right? And then the powder keg was all of these different geopolitical and historical arrangements that emerged and the history is extremely complicated. And like, basically, you know, you know, unless you're going to do the work, then just shut the fuck up and, <laughs> you know, enjoy the goddamn ride and don't pick sides yeah. and treat this like it's a team sport. Okay. It's so, so <laughs> this is us shutting the fuck up. Yeah, this is. <laughs> and just to contradict exactly what I just said, let's go. Episode. Yeah, no, I, I saw a meme the other day where somebody was like, whatever previous geopolitical beliefs you happen to have, the war in Ukraine vindicates them. And that's more or less been the response that I've seen. And it's kind of annoying. But I, to the just point, I've even had students come up to me uh, at the end of a class on mediation, uh, alternative dispute mechanisms in Canada, uh, being like, can you give me your thoughts on the war of, on Ukraine? And I'm like, I don't know what you got from me talking about how mediation works in the province of Ontario, but sure, why the fuck not? I mean, there's a real <laughs> hunger for commentary on this, and I can kind of understand why. A lot of people don't really know that much about East, uh, Eastern Europe uh, or the geopolitics around there. So I guess they're just turning to anyone who seems to have some kind of expertise in something for resources on that front. So we have a, a major conflict, or I don't, I don't even know if it's a major conflict. There's conflicting reports. And we did, uh, if you remember a few months ago, an episode on hyperreal war. And that was Gulf War as the first live news broadcast war. And what do you guys think about this? This, this seems like the first uh, social media war in the same sense. I don't think it's a war. I heard it's a special military operation. <laughs> yeah. I heard, got that from, from right from the top. It's a denazification right effort. He's just getting rid of a few Nazis and a bad problem. I don't know. War, I war is always war. about information and disinformation and trying to follow this from the outside, I think is totally futile. There's 5,000 dead. No, there's 10,000 dead. Oh, the Nazi, they're denazifying. No, we're denazifying them. No, they're the Nazis. They, they're the Nazis. So... And then everyone just decides to take a side, you know, I hashtag stand with Ukraine. I mean, I think there's two <laughs> aspects to the Gulf War didn't happen statement that Baudrillard makes. Like one, it was, yeah, that the first media mediated, television mediated war. So it's it's pure spectacle. In other words, all the, the images aren't, you know, some explaining some reality that the images are pointing to. All of the press and coverage is part of it. Okay. And then the other point is, you know, like a war isn't when one extremely overpowered side with a mass amount of technology comes in and just obliterates the other side. That's not a war. That's a slaughter. But that's kind of splitting hairs, right? Because we see, you know, when two sides are fighting, there's a war. But I'm sure there are certain, you know, if we want to get more specific about what a war is, you need two relatively equal armies fighting and that's not what has happened for a long time there hasn't been two equal armies fighting there's been the united states and their allies which are op as fuck and then there's everyone else who gets in their way but now china and russia and other places are able to challenge that hegemony i have a somewhat i have a somewhat different take uh so my first take on this is i think that in some respects, this affirms Baudrillard's intuitions about the changing nature of warfare even better than the Gulf War does. Uh, I was just thinking the other day that if there was ever a war where, where you would want an actor being your president, this is the one. Because Lenski has done a fantastic job of literally playing 
the heroic Ukrainian uh, standing against, you know, the invading Russian hordes. And he's solicited worldwide sympathy because he's played into that role so effectively. And in case uh, in case people like don't know, like Zelensky was an actor in yeah. Ukraine and he was literally in a movie or a sh- I think it was a show where he played uh, a school teacher who then decides to run for president on an anti-corruption campaign. And then in real life, that actor ran on an anti-corruption campaign and won with the exact same <laughs> party name as the name that was used in the show. Yeah, exactly. Hyper and I, I, real. I, it was literally, it's literally like some scenario where Harrison Ford plays the U.S. One. president Air Force in one. Air Force One and then decides, like, I'm actually going to run Get for president. Get off my plane. But then all of a sudden he's in the same scenario and he actually does like a pretty good job of it. And you're like, oh, wow, we made the right choice. On the other hand, I do think that this is also a real war in the sense that, for instance, the Gulf War wasn't for exactly the reasons that Eric gave, which is that an extraordinarily one-sided conflict can't really be described as a war in the conventional sense. Because it does seem like the Ukrainians are actually doing a fairly good job of repelling uh, the Russian advance. At tremendous cost of international support. With heavy international support. Everyone's sending them weapons and, and which love. is really interesting. So Yeah, it's, it's of more of a two sided conflict than I think any of us expected, right? Well, one of the narratives um that was going on, which is actually related to the philosopher we're gonna talk about a little bit later, um, and kind of like Russian nationalism. One of the narratives that I was seeing online was okay, Putin has been spending all this time kind of watching the West. You know, in 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 block in like air quotes, the West. You know, Europe, uh, North America, like Canada, the United States, etc., have been have never been more divided internally, right? So, and then of course, people allege that Putin has been, you know, running this disinformation campaign. You know, the Trump election, all this stuff, just we online with troll troll farms. You know, trying to divide, and and it's true. I feel like. In a way, right before he invaded Ukraine, we were we were arguing over trucker protests and vaccine mandates, you know, internally extremely divided. And I would say in some ways, identityless and purposelessness was kind of rampant. And I think maybe Putin thought, OK, this is the perfect time because they can't even agree on simple things internally. So now I'll attack Ukraine and they won't do shit. Nothing's going to happen. And I would say that it seems like if that was a strategy, it seems to me that it's kind of backfiring because I would say, you know, we haven't really seen this much unity between uh, sort of like Western countries since probably like World War II. I mean, even more so in some sense, because even neutral countries like Sweden and Switzerland, Switzerland hasn't taken a side on an, on an, on a geopolitical conflict since the Napoleonic Wars, and they're sending weapons to Ukraine. Which and, is and, crazy. I w- and I want to point out this has even surprised me uh, because some of the countries that seemed on the fence about these issues, like Poland or Hungary, uh, have now kind of firmly, or some of the Baltic states as well, kind of firmly sided uh, with the West or with NATO, however you want to connote it, uh, when it comes to the Russia conflict. Uh, and I didn't exactly expect that to happen in part because so many of these regimes are kind of mixed authoritarian regimes that seem to draw a lot from Putinism. Uh, and yet, you know, now in Poland, there are just mass reserves uh, of weapons that are going to be shipped to the Ukraine. It's hard Quite for shocking. me to believe that that with all the military intellectual capital that I assume exists in Russia, that they wouldn't have seen this coming. You know, like, oh, they're all disunified. Now's the perfect time to attack. Now's the perfect time to give everyone an excuse to unify against some external, quote unquote, yeah. threat. <laughs> right. Like we've have you seen any sci fi movies like that's always what fucking happens. Everyone's fighting and then an alien invades and everyone comes together to repel the invaders. And then magically a better world is born afterwards. Yeah. Like so his, his very big mistake was doing anything while everyone was bored as fuck. <laughs> well, I mean, I think 
The problem is, and again, this goes back to kind of like ascribing a causal connection or ascribing a psychological motive. Like it's hard because, you know, uh, like a lot of arguments assume a kind of rational actor. They assume that Putin is a rational actor. And obviously like, that's that's not a, a good assumption to make. So it's just hard to know at the what you can really do is try to be like, OK, well, what might be his like perception of like reasons to invade? And obviously that's one account. But I mean, you know, I can't actually think of a good we, reason. We know the answer and we're about to give it to you. Listener, <laughs> big promises, big pause, big pause. Trouble. As good Hegelians, we do know what causes conflict in the world, and it is the movement of history. So, we know. <laughs> there you go. Everyone else was surprised. Yes, this the cause is history. In case you didn't know, everyone else was surprised when this happened, but we knew. We've looked at the philosophical underpinnings of Eurasian nationalism as told by, uh, get ready for this, pagan occultist slash traditionalist slash orthodox Christian slash yeah. fascist slash Stalinist who didn't think Hitler was so bad. You know, bad, but not so bad. And he's got a definitely a Rasputin uh, aesthetic going on and supposedly also having Putin's ear. To what degree... I have no idea. Maybe maybe you guys know. But he wrote a book claiming that it was Russia's historical right, nay, duty, to annex Ukraine in the service of a new Russian empire, which is the only thing that can hold back the tide of moral and cultural decadence emanating around the globe from the West and from the US, USA. And this book is what, like uh, 20 years old already? Uh, he's written a lot, but the book yeah. isn't wasn't fourth political theory written a little bit more recently, I, like 2011, 2009, and it was published in English uh, in 2012. And then there's a new edition that came out recently. Hmm. No, I mean 1997 <laughs> is when he released his. I think it's Foundations of Geopolitics is how it's usually um, translated uh, text. And even at that point, he was starting to talk a bit about pan Eurasianism uh, and the kind of anti-American or anti-liberal bloc. It just wasn't given the kind of philosophical gloss that you find in the fourth political theory. Which... And we're, we're talking about Alexander Dugan here, yeah. the Russian. Oh, Rasputin. you spoiled it. You spoiled Everyone's it. Everyone's favorite oh. fascist Santa Claus. We're, just cut we're that talking out. about, honestly, this is the scariest philosopher. That He's like evil. I mean, Heidegger's already pretty evil, but this is like dark <laughs> Heidegger, dark timeline Heidegger. <laughs> Heidegger is like Darth Vader. Um, you know, he he you know he he want, deep down inside there's like a goodness to him. But this guy, this yeah, is like Emperor. This is Emperor Palpatine. <laughs> his 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 erudition, his learning is is quite astonishing, though. He does cite wide range of theorists. He know, like he knows his shit. But yeah. I mean, clearly he's he's playing this sort of role or been ascribed this role as a kind of state philosopher. Uh, and he, you know, it's, it's hard to separate what parts of his ideas he's borrowing, which seem somewhat cogent and, and wh which ones are being fitted into this sort of role he's playing. And, you know, you can imagine he can't if he if he says the wrong thing, you know, he could run afoul of the Kremlin and get booted yeah. out. So yeah. for, of for over 20 years, though, he's been saying we need to unify the Russian speaking peoples of Ukraine. And, you know, Ukraine's not even a real country anyway, <clears throat> so we should just take it back. Yeah, yeah. there's like a unified Eurasian culture is kind of like the, the term he likes to use. But Dugan is interesting because I may have I, I've probably spoken about this on the podcast before, but, 
you know, I first learned and I've been kind of fascinated on, on kind of on the side with Dugan because in my department of political science at the University of Toronto, there was like a famous oh, yeah, you controversy. Had that controversy. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. You had a controversy with this student, Michael Millerman, who's now fairly like well known on Twitter in certain kind of like conservative intellectual circles, whatever. Um, and so he was writing his dissertation, which I think it was a very interesting topic. And he ended up publishing it uh, as a book um, with a questionable press. But anyway, we'll leave that aside for now. But it, the, the topic, I think, was very interesting. The, the word is he a fascist doing, press. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he was doing a basically like I think what is on the surface very valuable work, which is just like comparing or like reading Heidegger as a political thinker and basically doing a comparative analysis of four readings of Heidegger. Uh, one being Leo Strauss, another being Derrida, another being Richard Rorty, and then the fourth being Dugan. Um, so his 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 dissertation was on that. And then what ended up happening is his uh, committee uh, at the time kind of found out who Dugan was after they were initially working with him, realized Dugan was kind of crazy and had like very reactionary, you know, well, we'll talk about whether or not he's a fascist, but, you know, seemingly fascistic views. And they all ended up essentially resigning from his committee. And he struggled uh, to finish his PhD. And he actually, ironically, the person who ended up supervising him uh, and didn't resign from his committee is actually like uh, like a post-colonial, like Derridian, far left uh, political theorist who was like, whatever, this this guy's smart. Like he's, he's doing good work. Like I want to help him on, on to finish his PhD. She just, from kind of like an intellectual values level, didn't agree with what was happening uh, in the department. There's actually a National Post story written about this. So all of this is like public knowledge. It's not really like inside gossip. Must um, have been a bunch of liberals on his committee. Yeah, the cancel. It was a bunch of liberals cancel, on his committee. Cancel culture, but there's the tolerant left for you. And he said, and he said that he actually made that comment. He's like, all the people who resigned from my committee were kind of like either Straussian center, like leftist Leo Strauss types, or like center left, kind of like. You know, yeah, I mean, they were like liberals, basically. Different, which is, different, wh different, which all plays perfectly into these narratives that you get exactly. from Dugan and from Peterson exactly. and from Trump. You get these narratives about cancellation and centrist and left liberals being moralistic. And I mean, you just they just play right fucking into that, don't they? They put their foot in their mouths. Like, don't resign on moral principles. That's yeah. so stupid. I, I do I want to, and I, I, yeah, and 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 the one who supervised him, a Ruth Marshall. So this is again public knowledge on the in the article. She basically like said exactly that, you know, that that it's 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 playing into their hands, and and this is like a dumb thing. He, he, I'm going to supervise him. All right, we're gonna yeah, I, we're gonna get to uh, Matt here to actually introduce this yeah, character yeah. to us in a second. But the last uh, the last thing about the intro that I wanted to bring up was how weirdly close some of his language is to Fanon. Fanon, who is a pan-Africanist, post-colonial revolutionary theorist, like very far left, communist. And then Dugan on this, I don't even, I don't even know if this fits the right left axis very neatly, but this, we need to resist the imperial center. We need to Resist imperial domination from the West. And Eurasianism. We right? need to establish a personal identity for for Russo 
Slavic extended extended peoples, yeah. and we need to resist yeah Americanism. So yeah, you get a, you get a nice so... mirror, a nice parallel. I think I made that comment when we were doing our Fanon episode that a lot of his arguments could fit into. I don't know if I if I said Dugan by name, but I think I made the comment that it could fit into some conservative kind of reasoning. And, and he loves pragmatism too. I I was just watching a thing like he loves American pragmatism. He says, "Oh, America, you're you're losing your true spirit, capitulating to these globalist liberals. You need to get back to your pragmatist." roots and read Emerson and read James. And, oh my God. It's weird. Uh, anyway, sorry. Go go on, Matt. We'll get to Matt now. Yeah. So if you ever wanted an episode where Matt talks a lot, this is that because he's the expert on this. Yeah. You actually read all of the fourth political theory and, 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 and uh, Pills was saying maybe it doesn't fit on the left right spectrum, but maybe you could also explain you know, because the title of the book is kind of speaking to that whole complication of yeah, the left-right after, spectrum. After you talk about who he is, be like, what are these four things? And you should look at, also our listeners should look at this Wikipedia page because he is variously a Gnostic Satanist, occultist, <laughs> but also a traditionalist Christian. And it's it's very confusing. He was, he was uh, yeah, part of a Satanist group that studied the Waffen, the the SS Waffen divisions. Is that true? Occult studies. So Jesus. it's a fun Wikipedia page. But anyway, Matt, who is this guy? What does he say? And uh, well, what's the fourth political? How theory? afraid are you? Who is his daddy, and what does he do? Yeah, how afraid should we be? <laughs> uh, intellectually less afraid than some people might actually think. Uh, although geopolitically, any situation where we have nine thousand nuclear weapons. Pointed at the rest of the world is cause for concern, right? Which isn't totally five thousand West. What? Five thousand. Five thousand. Thank you. I looked it up recently. That makes me feel much better, right? Yeah. (laughs) And while we're pedantically correcting each other, it's uh, nuclear, not nuclear. Little George Bushism there. Yeah. Nuclear. Nuclear. Uh, Uh, I can only kill everybody on the planet three times over. That's pretty weak. I think like ten, but anyway, okay. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean it's it's definitely a lot better. Now I will. I'll get to know that my ashes will still persist somewhere, right? But, you know, it won't be pulverized right down to atoms. Love um, the bomb, baby. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but anyway, I want to say that uh, I was first introduced to Dugan actually uh, probably around 2018, um, particularly because of his work in geopolitics, where in 1997, uh, he wrote a book, Foundations of Geopolitics, uh, which argued kind of in the same vein as Samuel Huntington, who's also referenced several times in the fourth political theory, uh, that... History was moving because uh, there is such a thing as history, right? He didn't think it was over. There was a kind of clash uh, of these big global blocks, right? Uh, in this case, you know, he argued for a kind of pan-Eurasian uh, block that would confront the hegemony uh, of Western liberal or neoconservative at the time hegemony. And when um, he says pan-Eurasian, how much of Asia is included in that? Well, that's really not something that he settles politi- or theoretically, in part because he says it has to be sorted out politically, Right. Um, but he makes the argument that, again, as you said, a lot of the Russian-speaking countries or Russian-aligned countries uh, could be, probably be part of this pan-Eurasian bloc, uh, including all the over older Soviet states. Sometimes he flirts with the idea that there could be a kind of Sino-Russian alliance, right? So between China and Russia, that would obviously be pretty powerful. But it really matter- it depends a lot on contingent circumstances that can't be settled uh, immediately, right? And yeah, fair enough, right? Um, but, you know, the thing about the book is that it really is a work on geopolitics uh, in the sense that it's actually pretty grounded, right, in the sense that it talks about power politics, recent history, that kind of stuff. But it doesn't really have a kind of theoretical or ideological oomph to it, uh, at least not compared to what you see in the fourth political theory, which is really intended to kind of give a philosophical gloss 
to a lot of his ideas. Uh, and I do want to say that he does actually confront the problems uh, with the left-right spectrum pretty head-on. Um, and he draws inspiration from at least two of the three great modern political theories, as he calls them. But there should be no kind of doubt about it that he himself situates himself on the political right. Uh, he describes himself as a conservative, a traditionalist, uh, any number of different terms, you know, that are used somewhat interchangeably in the translation that I read. And it's worth just quickly chiming in that traditionalism also means something more specific. We don't have to get into that, but I want to no. refer people to Matt and I's interview with Benjamin Teitelbaum, which we did a little while ago, where he explored tr capital T traditionalism. So listeners should check that out if they're curious. Yeah, exactly. It's like, um, it's like a specific thing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. And so, you know, um, he, he refers to several of these terms interchangeably. Uh, there's a reason for that because, you know, the chapters are kind of um, not intended to be holistically oriented in this book, right? They kind of stand on their own. And so there's sometimes different terminologies and different references used in each one. Uh, but, you know, what kind of makes his conservative or traditionalism, conservatism or traditionalism interesting is its willingness to engage seriously with certain kinds of radical left ideas. Uh, but it's worth noting only those radical left ideas that he thinks are amenable to a critique of liberalism uh, and the more permissive sides of modernity. Right. So. So in his mind, liberal liberalism and neoliberalism and the expansion of, you know, valueless Americanism. This is the great evil that's wrapping itself around the world. Is that is that fair to say? Well, can we call it an evil? That itself is a question in the book. So, look, I just want to say, first off, I really don't like this book, uh, not just because I don't agree with it politically, but also because I don't think it's really all that good intellectually. Uh, one of the reasons I'm not sure that it's very good intellectually is it's kind of gleefully inconsistent uh, in its approach to things. Uh, now, there is a reason for that, and I'll explain it. But look, let's just make it clear, right? Uh, one of the kind of consistent themes that comes through in the book is that there are three major modern political theories, uh, two of which Dugan respects, one of which he does not, right? Uh, the two that he respects are, broadly speaking, leftism, right? radical leftism, in particular the Marxist tradition. Uh, or the communist tradition, however you want to call it, again, used interchangeably. The second uh, is the fascist tradition, right? Uh, now, there are different flavors of fascism, though, some of which he finds more appealing than others. And I also want to point out that he's very clear that he's not a racist uh, fascist, right? Or he's not attracted to racist <laughs> versions of fascism. <laughs> not, hashtag not all fascists. Yeah, I mean, you might think that's just absurd to say, but, you know, there's an argument for it. We can talk about it. But the one no, there is there, there there is a legitimate argument for that. I mean, I I had to teach uh, in an ideologies class about Mussolini and stuff and yeah. like fascism, and I think that it's true. Like we often because Nazism is, so dominates our imagination of fascism, I think we do actually forget um, that intellectually fascism has no necessary connection to race. And who is yeah. this Italian fascist that he always uh, cites? Julius Evola is the Evola, one that consists yeah. most consistently, right? And Evola made exactly this argument that the problem with fascism, this is putting it really briefly, right, uh, is that it's not radical enough or not radically uh, critical of modernity. Oh, an ever more radical like uh, theory, right? Yeah, exactly, right? You, know, you still find, you find these trends on the right also. Because Evola's kind of point is that Nazism and eventually Italian fascism, because you're right, Victor, there was a transition, right, as Nazism became more influential, uh, kind of gave into this crude biologism, right, where it basically ceded to modernity the idea that we should be rationalistic and scientific in our approach to things like the nation, right? Uh, and we should discriminate on people against people on the basis of their biological race, right? Because some are scientifically inferior and some are scientifically superior. Evola wants to have nothing to do with that, right? Because uh, it's too crude, too materialistic, too modern, right? 
Uh, and Dugan's sympathetic with that, right? I believe Dugan called the modern sciences demonic. Yeah. I mean, weird, weird thing for a Satanist to say, but. Yeah, and he also, I mean, so that's exactly right. So he a thinks. A so-called that, Satanist. So-called Satanist. Your Satanism's weak, boy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And tr traditionally, I think fascism, he just sees it as too modern, right? As Matt was yeah. saying. It's too yeah. much of, of about related to modern rationality, organizing society rationally, right? In a unified yeah. way. I think, I think one of the, one of the, broad outlines to point to in his theory is that is that yes liberalism fascism and communism are the three ways that modernity has specifically produced right and he wants his fourth way to be a kind of amalgam of what's best in postmodernism which he really respects and his kind of pre-modern traditionalism that's so his fourth way is Another one of these sort of now kind of common currency, actually, in critical theory, ways of moving beyond modernity altogether, of which sort of postmodernity post since the 70s has really just been an extension of moder modernity and a radicalization of what modernity already created. He wants to move past that. So that's, that's another one of the broad strokes, right? These three, fascism, communism, liberalism, they're of a piece, they're different, but they all come from the same sort of time period beginning with the discovery of the Americas, slavery, Eurocentrism, all these sorts of historical things that have built up since the 16th century, yeah. right? And Descartes, right? Uh, but it's worth noting again that he's willing to have a lot of good things to say about elements of fascism uh, and elements of this is probably what I call it communism or Marxism, right? Yeah. Uh, but again, uh, the fascist element is definitely the main one in the fourth political theory, the one that he clearly is the most sympathetic to. Uh, the elements of Marxism that he's willing to be interested in uh, generally relate back to the critique of capitalism, right? Uh, and critiques of uh, American and U.S. imperialism. Especially an right? enemy of my enemy is yeah. his approach. Uh, but, but I mean, the one that he is stridently opposed to at all costs, right? That we will never, ever offer a single concession to uh, is liberalism, right? Uh, that's the main target uh, that he's arguing against over the course of the book. Uh, again, pretty inconsistently, I should say, uh, because the reason he justifies this animosity isn't really um, clear. Well, it's not unclear. It's never consistently uh, argued for. But I mean, that's the main enemy, uh, and he sees this as being embodied in the United States, uh, which is kind of the well, ultimate are, are, liberal country. What are the main reasons that he that he hates liberalism? I know you said they're inconsistent, but well, the, the reason is that the big inconsistency in the book is this, right? Uh, on the one hand, he broadly endorses a kind of relativistic approach to morality, which in and of itself is interesting uh, because he acknowledges, like he's a smart guy, right, that this is an insight he gains from postmodern theorists like Foucault, for example, right. Uh, that we can't make an argument for universal truth claims, whether about how the world operates or the way that it should operate, right? Uh, and based on this, he makes an argument that you see a lot of conservative authors make, right? That uh, morality, to the extent that we say it exists, uh, is communal, right? Uh, it can be defined at the national level, at the civilizational level, maybe at the imperial level, right? Uh, but it only applies in its respective region, right? Now, one thing that you might immediately come back at is to say, well, then why doesn't liberalism just apply in its respective region, right? If these Western countries want to be liberal, then that's their morality, okay? Uh, and at some points in the book, he actually does acknowledge that. There's more kind of passive moments, right? Where he says, if the West wants to do liberalism and accept LGBTQ people uh, and accept trans identities, that's fine. Does he talk about that, those yeah. things specifically? Oh yeah, yeah okay. it falls under the label of uh, post-humanism, right? Amongst other things, right? And we can talk about that. 
But at other points, he makes it very clear that he's not going to be as acquiescent, that there needs to be kind of a militant pushback against liberalism by Russia or by pan-Eurasianism. Uh, and he also encourages conservative groups in the United States to try to do the same. Right? Uh, and that's when he uses very morally loaded language that doesn't sound relativistic at all, right? characterizing liberalism as evil, decayed, demonic, you know. You pick oh, so your he does. Word, so so uh, he does the th the thing that all postmodern theorists do, which is actually be crypto normativists. Yeah, oh, no, th that's exactly it. He he is anti universalist. That's his thing, right? That's my understanding. His position against liberalism, and he does sort of speak favorably of some older forms of liberalism, but he is against liberal universality. So universal things like human rights is is one of the things he opposes because he sees that as something that is imposed on other people. And he doesn't like that. He's, he's down for this sort of, what you're saying, like cultural self-determination kind of idea that he picks up from postmodernists, but he also cites uh, friend Boas and anthropologists and cultural relativism as well as an idea he likes to build on. But he's specifically against universal universalizing claims. Another thing he picks up from, he picks up a lot of these things from postmodernists kind of strategies, right? This is I this is identity politics or or standpoint epistemology for fascists. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you're absolutely right that that a lot of the book makes that kind of argument, right? Uh, but then that leads you into the problem, of course, which is that if morality is just a matter of your perspective and if it's localized to certain regions, that it's very difficult for you to launch a compelling criticism of something like liberalism for reasons that he understands, right? And you just say, well, if they want to do liberalism in the United States and Western Europe, that's fine, right? That's what they can do there. Uh, and what's also problematic, of course, is if it's the case that people in these regions believe in the universality of their doctrines, then that's just a kind of cultural perspective that they take, that their doctrines apply everywhere. It's kind of hard to criticize that, right? So at other points in the book, he does appear, uh, to use Victor's terms, to crypto-normativist or sometimes even moralistic language I don't or even crypto well crypto universalistic too because he's if he's making these moral claims they have to apply like it's it sounds like you're saying he makes them in a way that they sound like objective universal claims yeah exactly but he's I saying mean, they no belong to the eurasian people they're he's he's arguing for morality specifically it's not crypto universalist yeah, you know, from their standpoint uh it's ugly it's evil it's bad etc right right except it's not clear um how those terms are meant to be understood if they're just, uh, they just apply from that particular standpoint. And it's also worth noting yeah, that yeah, but, but this I becomes- just want to, I just want to clarify yeah, this yeah. point because I want, I want to make sure that I'm getting the kind of inconsistency that you're saying in the book clear. Because you're saying at some points he's like, okay, from our perspective, these things are demonic. But then, so, and then he wants to say, you know, if, if the West wants to be liberal, they can be liberal. But then at other points of the book, it's you're saying it sounds like he's making claims from his standpoint that are condemning the West- um, yeah, but the, but but in a way that sounds like it's actually more of an objective universal claim, because otherwise he would just be like, fine, we don't agree with that. But the left can do or the, the, the West can do what they want to do. But universalism and normativity are not the same thing. You can make local normative claims. You can't make a local universal claim. That doesn't make sense. But you can make a normative claim that has a limited geographical or historical application, whereas you can't make a universal claim that the head does that because that's what a universal is it's a predicate that applies to everything in the collection you're talking about yeah the problem is that's clearly not the case in this book right where throughout he does make 
claims that are very much loaded uh, with universalistic language that are normative claims about the ugliness, the evil, uh, the tyranny, the danger uh, of Western liberalism and why it needs to be confronted both in Russia uh, and elsewhere, right? Uh, and it's also worth noting that he goes even further than a lot of at least the early postmodern theorists will do uh, by claiming that what we need is a return to theology as well, right? Uh, so there's a kind of theological dimension to this where sometimes they'll even describe this as a kind of religious confrontation between the spiritually robust, uh, God-fearing Russians, right? And, uh, and mysticism, kind of atheistic, too. Uh, or decadent West, right? And it's very hard to kind of make an argument for the religious veracity of your point of view without appealing to some kind of universalism, which he does all, or universalistic language. So, so you're saying he's, so you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, that he's like a conservative, but he also draws on a lot of postmodernism. I wonder if anyone's written on that. <laughs> I don't think I've yeah. topic. That's a new phrase to me. <laughs> well, what, what, I, what I like about this though is like. Heard of that. It, yeah. Just well, going what I, today. What I really liked about this book. Yeah. I mean, I agree. Is while I read, was reading this, I don't, I won't lie and say that I didn't have a few moments of vindication, right? But what was interesting to me about this is what I was describing was a kind of unconscious phenomena, right? That conservatives have been stamped by features of postmodernity, whether they knew it or not, and they were agitating uh, for these kind of politics and positions in a POMO way, right? Whereas what Dugan is doing, because Dugan is a very smart guy, right? I'm not denying that, is he's making this kind of self-conscious, right? Where he's saying, yeah, I've read Derrida Foucault, Deleuze is a very frequent reference in the text, and he says, I'm doing that, but for these kind of conservative causes. Yeah, he's like the he's the flip side of someone like Gramsci, who's yeah. arguing for yeah. cultural, global, uh, capitalist hegemony, and this yeah. is our form of resistance to it. Is you know everything that the leftists tried, but they got they got killed for it. Well, and then now we yeah, have that my point. the right wing mirror of that. Yeah, yeah exactly. that was my point about that weird amalgam of postmodern ideas and and kind of traditionalism, theological values, mysticism, traditional. You know, it's it's a weird kind of kind of uh, melting pot of ideas he's got going. Before well, yeah, before actually, we talk a, too much about these specific ideas, um, because we brought it brought up the the Putin bit. Matt, can you explain yeah. a little bit the connection? Like how this guy you're saying is evil and dangerous, but maybe not so dangerous. So what do we have to uh, look forward to from this guy? Is he someone that Putin like draws on directly, or is he kind of a useful a useful clown for the for the state? What what is his connection to the Ukrainian situation? And actually, can I just say, can I suggest, Matt, that maybe one of the obvi most obvious ways into this is just to read. Uh, one of those Facebook posts that Dugan made in response to the to Russia invading Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's on Facebook and he has some juicy commentary on there about the the recent situation. So feel free to look at that if you want. But, but I look, have it in I front of me if you want me to read one of them. Yeah, please. I don't have Facebook. Okay, so uh, this is, I think, like on the day of the invasion. Uh, and he says, this is not a war with Ukraine. This is a confrontation with globalism as a whole planetary phenomenon confrontation at all levels, geopolitical and ideological. Russia rejects everything in globalism, monopolarity, Atlanticism, on the other hand, and liberalism, anti-tradition, technocracy, great reset in one wor wor word in another. It is clear that all European leaders are part of the Atlantic liberal elite, and we, we went to war with her. Hence, is their normal response. Um, Russia is now being excluded from the globalist network. 
She has no choice anymore, either to build her world or to disappear. Russia has taken a course to build its world, its civilization. And now the first step is being taken. But in the face of globalism, only a large space, a continent state, a civilizational state can be sovereign. No country will last a complete blackout for long. Russia is now creating a field of global, global resistance. Her victory will be the victory of all alternative forces, both the right and the left, and all nations. As always, we begin the most difficult and dangerous processes, but when we win, we all share. That's the way it's meant to be. We are now creating the premise for true polypolarism. Uh, and those uh, who are ready to kill us now will be the first to use our feet tomorrow. I almost always write... When uh, what then comes true, this too will come to pass. <laughs> that's yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's that's seductive, Victor. Now now you put me like on the prophet. you put me on the fascist pipeline. Thanks. <laughs> well, this is why I've, I've never liked uh, postmodernism because I think it opens the door to this. Opens the door. Yeah. So we should just close our eyes and believe liberal modernity is the best we've ever had or ever will have it. Yeah, and I want to note one of the things that uh, I was reminded of when I was reading Dugan's book is a point Terry Eagleton made in his book, The Illusions of Postmodernism, uh, where he says a lot of these people on the left will invoke things like particularity, anti-universalism, uh, anti-liberalism, forget that these actually had their root in conservative thinking, people like Edmund Burke uh, or Joseph yeah. DeMaestra. Well, and I actually, can I, yeah, before you go on with that, though, I do, I do just on the quote, I was wondering if... Maybe I think it's important to define this whole talk about polarity, pol, uh, polarism. Yeah. So okay, so look, I mean, this is something that's consistently uh, a major theme in his work, right? Uh, because again, Dugan is interdisciplinary. Let's just put it that way. So he's not just a political theorist. He really is concerned about uh, everything from the movies people watch uh, to practical geopolitics. You could almost see him uh, as a kind of dark Slavojizek that way, if you want. Also, right? There's nothing that he won't talk about, right? Uh, but the basic idea is that strategically and culturally, uh, there is a kind of problem uh, with the world order as has existed since 1989 uh, or 1992, right? Uh, which is that we live in a unipolar world, uh, one where there is one superpower or hyperpower, as he puts it in the book, the United States. Uh, and it gets to essentially set the agenda for the rest of the world. Uh, and while there can be some kind of deviations uh, from U.S. soft or light imperialism, uh, in countries like Iran or North Korea, they don't really have an awful lot of force. And the countries that try to stand outside of the U.S. imperial order uh, are considered bad, rogue states, the axis of evil, whatever you want to call it. There. So he's making an argument that strategically what you need is an alignment of culturally uh, and politically illiberal countries uh, that can serve as a kind of block that's sufficiently powerful to confront uh, U.S. and broadly speaking, liberal or Western hegemony. Right. Uh, and... He isn't always very sensitive uh, to the vast differences between different flavors of illiberalism, right? The reality is, I would say that um, Chinese socialism with or the Chinese socialism, Chinese characteristics or third way socialism or authoritarianism, whatever you want to call it, right, is very different from what you see with Putinism, right? Um, but again, the but argument is that if all these people align and you get enough of them, we'll be able to confront uh, the West and provide a resource for people who want to confront uh, its decadence within those countries. So as this well. so this polarity then is another is, is another way as a kind of geopolitical way of describing what he, philosophically he wants, as you said, inconsistently, but he wants there to be like room for different value systems 
uh, to exist in the world. So multi, whereas right now he feels like the liberal view is dominating with with America and and the West, and it, so in that sense it's unipolar geopolitically and culturally. And I think he. So you're saying that. So the geopolitical way of describing that is multipolarity, right? So he wants to build where there are several legitimate kind of value systems that coexist in the world. Yeah, and he draws on a number of different authors from across the political spectrum to make this argument, right? Uh, I mean, again, one of them is Samuel Huntington, uh, who's critical of. Huntington was famous for making this class of civilizations argument in 1997, right? Uh, Where he argues that, look, different civilizational blocks could theoretically serve uh, as a kind of counterweight to the hegemony of the West. But he also does draw on some leftist criticisms uh, of United American hegemony as well, particularly in the Marxist tradition, you know, by arguing that uh, illiberalism uh, can be conflated with anti-capitalism, and then maybe you could align some anti-capitalist states uh, into this block as well, right? It's a fairly open-ended kind of project, right? Uh, the only thing you need for membership, if you want to put it this way, really crudely, uh, is to be illiberal, right? Uh, if you look at the LGBTQ lifestyle and something in you thinks that's wrong and it should be put a stop to, congratulations, uh, you might be a country that can be in Dugan's illiberal block. So, again, I wanted to re- reiterate my question. Is Putin listening to this guy or is he a mouthpiece for an actual project or is he just an esoteric, uh, eccentric, publishing weird books and, and meeting with Steve Bannon? No, I mean, I, like Victor, I don't want to be unicausal, right? There can be this temptation on the part of philosophers. This is a podcast. We don't want nuance. We want the hot takes. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to give it. So, look, I mean, there's this kind of temptation that people like Heidegger will get fall into, and Dugan is the same way, uh, which is to say, ultimately, the ideas are what's determinative of the world. Uh, so Dugan will sit there and write his book in 1997, and whether the people at the top actually know it, Sooner or later, they'll be influenced ideas and they'll implement them, right? Well, he, he does have some sort of an official position in the in the Kremlin, does he not? He does, uh, yeah, some, in, at in some Russian title. And, and he's also maybe the, or was he still at Moscow State University or whatever? I'm not sure. I think yeah, he got kicked out of there, didn't he? Recently. Well, maybe he got. Yeah, so, look, I mean, again, I'm trying not to be unicausal in the sense of saying that Dugan basically determined... I thought we said that nuance wasn't allowed here. Okay, but let me let me just let me just quickly say, though, that I think it's hard to... I guess the answer, the direct answer, I think, to Pills' question is that, like, it's hard to know how much influence Dugan actually has on Putin. I don't know. I haven't read all the literature on it, but my understanding is, like, is some people think that, yeah, they talk all the time and, and he believes it. Other people think that that Putin just sees this guy Dugan talking about Eurasianism, which kind of roughly m- maps on to like Putin's fixation with wanting to have more influence geopolitically to be relevant, right? I, I think ultimately Putin sees how Russia used to be so relevant with the USSR, and now they're really they were kind of falling into irrelevance. So I think he sees this philosopher talking about stuff, and he's like, "Oh yeah, like this is an argument for us to be relevant again." Yeah. So, 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 but I don't know. I mean, I watched. I actually watched rewatched the Putin interviews from 2016, you know, Oliver Stone interviewed Putin for like four hours uh, over several different kinds of different days. And uh, because I was just fascinated to kind of like get a refresher on what Putin's like. And my impression from that is like, I don't know how philosophically sophisticated Putin is. I don't really think he necessarily (laughs) is. Yeah. My my hunch would be that he would not understand Dugan's books, but he has a geopolitical interest in and some vague notion that Russia needs to be relevant again. So maybe that's just like, um, you know, uh, kind of 
they have uh, interests that coincide enough so that they can be like uh, kind of like pointing in the same direction. But I doubt like Putin actually like understands the philosophy. That's yeah, my, my th that's what I was going to say. Right. Uh, again, trying to avoid being unicausal. I don't think that Dugan influenced Putin to be the way that he is. Right. Uh, this is just me speculating, right, because I'm not privy to what's going on in the Kremlin, uh, at least not yet. Right. Um, I think, though, that Dugan is a convenient ideological mouthpiece uh, for a lot of Putin's ideas who can provide a kind of theoretical justification, justification yeah. uh, that's appealing to a lot of people, not just in Russia, but outside of Russia, people like Millerman. Right. Uh, and you can sometimes see echoes of Dugan's arguments in the kind of rhetoric that Putin will use, because a very consistent point that comes through in all of his work uh, is this idea that the West is hypocritical, right? Because on the one hand, uh, it makes an argument for universal human rights, respecting national sovereignty, uh, being sensitive to cultural difference, right? Uh, while on the other hand, trying to impose this kind of monological liberalism uh, across, and capitalism across the globe, right? Uh, and often doing so by imperial means. Uh, and, and he's Putin absolutely actually, right about that. Yeah, no, that, I mean, there's no doubt that he's neither absolutely new right. nor controversial is that idea. <laughs> yeah, no, he's absolutely right about that. But what's unique about this uh, is, again, you'll often see Putin bringing up this fact to accuse the West of hypocrisy whenever somebody points out that Russia is now engaging in these kind of imperialistic projects and trying to export its national ideology um, through the invasion of the Ukraine, through invasions in Georgia. Uh, through kind of interfering uh, with and, in, and, in, uh, and installing puppet puppet governments. Yeah. Or, or in Belarus. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, and, you know, he says, you know, basically you're doing it. We're doing the same thing, uh, except we're doing it better because, you know, we're doing it in favor of the right ideology. And people in Russia love that. Right. Because he's seen as sticking up for the West. Now, as an argument, it's bunk. Right. Because saying you did it. So now we get to do it also uh, is the kind of morality or the ethos that children take. Right. Uh, but it does have some political credibility to it. Uh, so it wouldn't surprise me again if maybe he skims over Dukin's works, picks up on these kinds of arguments and then articulates them. And he does but, talk about you do hear Putin say stuff about like multipolarity yep. and, and unipolarity. I mean, that I mean, that that idea, as 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 Matt mentioned, you know, with like Samuel Huntington and stuff. I mean, I think that that language has been around in kind of like geopolitical geopolitics for a while. So so that's not, you know, unique to, to Dugan. But Dugan gives it some philosophical uh, uh, um, kind of underpinnings, but Matt, I was curious. I think one thing that might be important, and since we've talked, we've covered Heidegger before on the podcast, I think it would be interesting to, to to ask, like, what role does Heidegger play for Dugan? He plays a foundational role for him, although again, that's only in certain chapters. Okay, so the best way to describe this book would be: imagine that, <laughs> imagine that Deleuze and Guattari did an awful lot of crack cocaine moved to Russia and decided to become fascist uh, and rewrite <laughs> A Thousand Plateaus, right? You get something that looked a little bit like the fourth political theory because it's not a, a book uh, or a holistic book in the sense that we would understand it, right? Where you kind of start with an introduction, you move through the various chapters and subject matters, and then you reach a conclusion, right? Each chapter can kind of stand on its own. Uh, and he makes theoretical observations about a wide variety of different traditions, some of which he likes and some of which he doesn't, and doesn't make it too much of an effort of trying to say how this all fits together, right? Uh, and by the way, this isn't me speculating. He says that's what he's going to do, right? That he's engaging in this kind of playful pomo reading uh, of a lot of these figures. So when it comes to somebody like Heidegger, he's obviously on the right side of history, uh, you know, pun intended, right? Uh, because he has this argument for the authenticity of a collective Dasein, right? Um, that he makes uh, in the 1930s, right? This idea that 
the nation state can express itself authentically if it has the right leaders and if it breaks from the decadence uh, and inauthenticity of modernity. And obviously he's extremely uh, attracted to this and he calls it a kind of revolutionary conservatism, right? Uh, a conservatism that doesn't just want to kind of hold back modernity or compromise with modernity, uh, but wants to overthrow it wholesale in the name of a kind of national identity. Uh, now, obviously he points out that Heidegger also didn't go far enough because he kind of lapsed into supporting the Nazi party with his crude biological racism. Uh, so bad for him, right? So you could see Dugan's project, at least in the chapters where he's talking about it, as an attempt to kind of do this 1930s Heidegger project right, you know, to get it right this time. And he appeals to the concept of Dasein to kind of ground his sort of moral relativism, right? It's because he wants to say that there are different different Daseins, right? A rootedness. Well, this exactly. is, this is the, uh, the most Nazi Heidegger got was probably the speech, the yeah. rectorship speech. And there he talks very much about uh, yeah, yeah, the ground, the rootedness, connection to the earth, the Volk. And uh, yeah, that sounds like something being reproduced here in, a, in another language, obviously. No, absolutely. And just like in that speech, you see Heidegger sometimes gesture to elements of liberalism without ever calling it that by talking about the importance of freedom. So too do you see Dugan talk a lot about freedom, but real freedom or authentic freedom in this text, right? Uh, the freedom of the nation state uh, to express its true design. Uh, but it's interesting that he also sometimes has a bit more of a Nietzschean flavor to some of his work as well, because he says that the problem is that liberalism has always focused on equal freedom for all, by which he means kind of equal permissiveness for all, right? Uh, the right of everybody to choose what kind of ice cream flavor they want to eat or to fuck whoever they want, right? Which, by the way, I endorse. Um, since I'm apparently the horniest philosopher of the Prize. <laughs> That's that person in our chat set. <laughs> but anyway... Um, but, you know, Dugan says that the kind of freedom that's not allowed by liberalism uh, is the freedom of superior people or people with more imagination or creativity to engage in these kind of grand projects uh, of political or self-overcoming, uh, whether individually or collectively. Uh, and this kind of freedom can only happen if you have something approximating an authoritarian society where people can use others uh, as play for these kind of grandiose projects. Now, he never quite explains what he means by this or how authoritarian we can get. Uh, but it's clear that there's a kind of echo of Nietzscheanism that you find in Heidegger and now in Dugan uh, with this fixation on greatness or at least spectacular projects. And unlike Nietzsche and Heidegger, he endorses, uh, I think specifically Orthodox Christianity, but not because you should believe anything about Christianity. It's because you need some sort of social glue to bring the Volk or the people together to make them have this coherent project. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm not, nobody's going to read this book and accuse him of an excess of consistency, because you might think if we're going to be epistemic skeptics, uh, not just about normative universals, but about knowledge claims generally, then how do we know about God? But the argument is a functional one, uh, right? That theology has served Russia well, uh, or a kind of Russian orthodoxy has served Russia well, as a glue that's not only held society together, uh, which is, again, a kind of functional argument, but more importantly, it's oriented Russians towards these kind of spiritually great uh, or invigorating projects, right? Rather than just focusing on satisfying material needs, uh, they focused on these grand spiritual uh, and religious enterprises, right? And he's attracted to that. Uh, and, you know, he's not the only person on the far right to sometimes vacillate between a kind of Nietzschean attraction to atheistic great projects uh, and a kind of admiration of spiritual uh, or religious great projects, right? Uh, the one thing that's constant uh, through all these vacillations is that whether you're an atheist Nietzschean uh, or kind of uh, or Heideggerian, 
uh, are kind of Russian spiritualist, you're illiberal, right? You do not buy into liberalism and you buy into something that's more appealing uh, and more deep and deep than liberalism. There it is. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, intellectually, the book is, maybe this is going to make me sound a lot like an analytical philosopher um, and like a liberal theorist. It's not very good, right? It's all over the place. And there's really no effort to try to paper over the intense contradictions uh, within it. But I think Dugan would say that the demand that he do so uh, is itself reflective of a kind of liberal mentality. You know, I, that uh, was actually says, what I was going to say next is why are you harping so much on consistency as if consistent ideas are the ones that win? Yeah, no, th that's exactly what he'd say, right? That I'm not interested in things like consistency or rationality, uh, at least in the liberal sense of the word. I'm interested in these kind of creative, intuitive, dynamic projects uh, that will help thinking break out uh, of its boxes uh, and lead people down the course. Also, showing showing you why you think your consistent worldview, your consistent liberal worldview is actually very inconsistent kind of point, I guess, too. Sure. So I'm curious, does it make the two co-hosts who are a little bit more sympathetic to postmodernism? Are you guys finding this, this super appealing? Or are you guys going to become Duke I'm, I'm finding now? this dangerously, dangerously seductive. I, yeah. You are, yeah. aren't you? I, I can't speak for Eric, of course, but Dugan is reacting to the same thing we do more so than you libs. And that is the pervasive <laughs> attitude on the part yeah. of mostly everyone who has a stake in this system. And you know, the stakeholders who control politicians through donations, who, who, are, who can afford to pay the salaries yeah. of mouthpieces in the mainstream media. Um, and the attitude of them, liberals generally, is an unabashed smugness about the totality of their fantasies about the world. Yeah, okay, we invaded Iraq and that was bad, but it was just a miscalculation and just a miscalculation, but it doesn't really matter anyway because Iraq was not free. So Iraqis, of course, are outside of history, miscalculation on our part. And this comes out from liberals, not just philosophically, but the way this is intermixed with ever-expanding capitalist interests that they make history, their morality is real morality, and we'll never make anything new. We'll never let you have something new. So you stupid little leftists and you stupid little protesters and you stupid little Delizians, why are you even trying? History, if it's not over, as some of them say, but if history is not over, then it's our business. History is liberal business, literally. And anyone outside of that, Iran, uh, China, Russia, we're going to sanction you and make the lives of ordinary people a, a living hot hell, just unbearable, because again, they don't get a stake in our story. We don't get a stake. They don't get a stake in the grand narrative. So I'm sympathetic to leftism insofar as it is opposed to that smugness, that this thing is rotten with a pretty face. And that happens to be the same thing that Dugan argues for. So the rest of the shit is pretty scary admittedly but i have no difficulty no trouble understanding the appeal of this line of thinking at all i do i guess the best i think the best analogy for this is probably um i'll get to it it's kind of a weird thing to see somebody who draws on all the same thinkers that i respect 
and does something different. It's like, I want to use all these thinkers, postmodernists. I like what he reads, right? He talks about Deleuze and Foucault and Derrida. And he talks about pragmatists like Peirce and James and Dewey. And he and he approves of them as well. And it, like the best analogy I can think of is like, we're working with the same material, but whereas I want to build a nuclear power plant, he wants to build a nuclear weapons facility. And they're, they're very similar things, but they have very different functions in the end now, don't they? One of them is to help people and the other one is to fuck people up. And I, that's just what I feel like. They're both made of the same shit. They both look the same, but they're very hmm. fucking different. And that's the best analogy I can think of because it's jarring to see somebody who lines up. Like he said, his favorite postmodern philosopher is Bruno Latour. Hey, and he mentioned he really likes boy. that book, <laughs> We Have Never Been Modern, right? Because it fits right in with this whole thing right like anti-modern that's the basic position he has he's an anti-modernist and he sees fascism liberalism communism all coming from the modern period so he likes this book we have never been modern where latour argues that modernity or what latour calls the modern settlement was this sort of like resolution between scientists represented by Boyle, Robert Boyle, and philosophers represented by Hobbes. And they said, you can have your section and we'll call that nature. And you politicians, you can have your ontological division of the world and we'll call that culture. And then the modernist settlement was born and here we are today with this sort of dualistic worldview, mind, body, subject, object. And he, and he and he brings up these sorts of points. And I think they're very good arguments. They're very, very keyed into what modernity is all about. But again, he wants to build a weapons facility, and I would rather build something that's a little more so what, useful so, than that. So, so what accounts for that difference, right? Um, so like, doesn't that mean that you need under you need to actually just like take a leap and make a normative claim uh, for like why you prefer the power plant over the weapons facility? Yeah, well, I don't. Question, I'm not. Victor. I'm not opposed to normativity, right? You know, like. But the, he's trying to do a gotcha. No, m normativity is not something that's precluded by postmodernism. What postmodernism is interested in is how did we get this normativity? Where does the normativity get built? How over time do we get to normative claims? First calls aesthetics, ethics, and philosophy the normative sciences. That's what they're designed to do. Whenever you hold a belief about something, all beliefs are normative, right? A belief is what you would do if this situation would arise. That is by definition normative. Humans and all animals contain normativity and generality within them, right? It's not a big fucking deal unless I you're get it. kind of like a radical particularist brought up on a diet of only dairy diet and then then maybe i don't know but but do you think that there's a way in which like dugan is somehow deciding by using kind of his like you know anti-modern anti kind of like like logocentric rationalistic view to then say well because i can clear the space of all these like imposing scientific kind of claims like normative claims that are like pretending to be based on reason then now from that standpoint, you can be like, yeah, actually, we do have a Russian culture. I'm choosing to say Russian culture where we can exclude gay people, exclude trans people, exclude, exclude, exclude and build what we want. It's and like, 17 so, year old boys to die. And, uh. Yeah. And then so how do you so then so I guess it's like so what protects us then? It's like we need something uh, to protect us from that if we're going to use all these same philosophers to say, no, these philosophers actually uh, are, are about uh, 
you know, there should be some some principle to lead us to inclusion or something. But then that's the thing, right? Are we going to go with the noble lie in that case? Then is that the normative claim you're looking for? We need a normal. We need a noble lie, which may be completely false. Like all humans are equal. Liberalism. And whether or not that's true or false, that's the no. That's the noble thing. Probably a lie that we're going to go with, right? And then you get back into this whole problem of again Platonism, which Dugan likes. He loves Platonists, right? He's Neoplatonism. He's yeah, he's into that shit too. So you're right back in Dugan's arena again, and you got to then now normative claim yourself out again with a different lie. It's like he's lying about one thing. I want to lie about something different. Just become liberals. It's it's great. Well, guys. Just because it is. You, yeah, it's fantastic. The, the reason that Open this McDonald's is not liberal is because just liberals. believing oh. in something like universal human rights doesn't make universal human rights exist on a on a justified philosophical ground. That's why you need the lie. No, well, here, what I want to say- Lies are true. What I want to say is that uh, I think the thinker who is most consistent on this basis, and is somebody that he relies on quite a bit in the book, not as much as some other people, is somebody like Deleuze, right? Because when you read Derrida's work uh, or you read the work of somebody like Michel Foucault, they're pretty insistent that their work is intended to be interpreted for radical purposes, radical left purposes, uh, or in Derrida's case, kind of soft radical left purposes. Deleuze was the only one I could think of who was honest enough, and the guitar in Thousand Plateaus, to say, look, we're not sitting there saying, be rhizomatic, right? Because uh, rhizomatic thinking might be more democratic, it might be more inclusive, it might be more hyper-Martin, to use Dugan's term, uh, but it can also mean microfascism emerging, right? Or neo-fascism, uh, or traditionalism of that sort, right? Uh, so, and there is no barrier that we can put up to those kind of things on the basis of our way of thinking about it. And Dugan, in some senses, seems to have taken up that challenge to say, fine, I am going to do a kind of rhizomatic traditionalism uh, from a Russian standpoint. And am I surprised by that? No. Uh, do I think it's interesting? Yes. Do I think it needs to be confronted uh, and destroyed at every single level where possible? Yes, I also think that because I think the yeah. world that he's arguing for is a horrifying one. Uh, and that doesn't mean that liberalism is without tremendous flaws uh, and modernity is without tremendous flaws. Uh, but as both a liberal and a socialist, uh, I think that we need to have a, say a big no to this way of thinking about things. Mm -hmm. I think what makes us different too is I'm not a Canadian. Philosopher. And Victor, Victor, I know you were saying this kind of tongue in cheek, but saying, "Well, just become a liberal and reassert those values." <laughs> no, the correct response to this would be, you have to overcome him aesthetically, which means you have to be more interesting than Dugan. So fuck consistency, <laughs> just be more interesting. <laughs> Be more that interesting. Could work too. Yeah, I mean, well, that that's, part of, that's part of the danger, right? Because you know, every every state has its ideology, its philosophy, its, its state philosophers kind of thing. Every every state has that, and you know, in combination with some kind of political agenda or geopolitical strategy, right? The spearhead of those strategies is always going to be an ideological front. That's that's how it works, right? You got to get the you got to get the justification out there ahead of the front lines and then hopefully you can neutralize some of the opposition, get certain people on your side. Every state does this. This is just a reality. This is a real politic reality that happens. And he's doing it for Russia. And what I guess what makes us different is that I am not claiming that Canada is some fallen empire that needs to be restored and I'm going to do it with <laughs> Charles Sanders' purse and Felix Guattari. That's not my claim. That's, that's I mean, sort of Dugan's claim about Russia, right? So it's it kind of puts his ideas in line with a certain kind of political agenda. So as as 
as you know, as well as he presents his ideas, as as appealing as they seem, and the nice sort of friendly veneer he puts on his his interviews, where he doesn't like. I mean, it's just like watching Jordan Peterson, right? It's like it's like I don't disagree with everything he says, but it's sort of the spirit in which it's presented that puts me off a little bit, and that's the same thing with Dugan here. Is that he's not saying anything that's like wrong or controversial i mean when you get down into the sort of yeah and like looking for the analytic points where he contradicts himself okay there you go you could desire some more detail but in the end you know it's the proximity of his ideas to a certain geopolitical strategy that probably makes them the most dangerous yeah yeah i mean i mean i think i think right now what we're seeing too is i was gonna say like bringing it back to the perspective of ukraine you know i think that if that quote if, if Dugan, the Duganites think that what Putin is doing right now is like fulfilling that, I mean, it kind of seems to me like it's backfiring, you know, because like if, if this sort of like Western ide- identity was the thing that needs to be overcome, it's like it might have been better strategy to just sit back and, and watch the West keep internally quibbling over like nonsense, like mask mandates and like let it kind of like decay from its own decadence. But instead... You know, the best thing you can do for like a, a cultural like block or whatever is to give it an enemy. <laughs> um, and I think that's really what Putin just did. Yeah, and, I, I agree. And all which is prophecies kind of ironic. need believers, right? And the more believers, the more self-fulfilling the prophecy would be. I, I, if it's I, the fall I really, of the West, then the more people who believe that's going to happen is more likely it is to happen. Yeah. And you, I, I really, it's too bad that, um, you know, uh, we might have to wrap up soon because I, I, you know, I spent actually quite a bit of time reading through um, Michael Millerman's paper that he was, because Michael Millerman was tweeting when all of this was happening. He was tweeting about Dugan, subsequently ended up deleting them. I don't know, maybe because he got, uh, I think he, he pulls himself Some into flack. controversial discourse. <laughs> um, but I read, so he, I read one of his papers that was posted on his academia.edu page that he was posting, kind of being like, if you want to know what Dugan's about, like read this, if you want to understand, right? If you want to understand the views. Um, and I think like what's, what was interesting about the paper that I wanted to quickly touch on is just the way that Millerman is kind of trying to defend Dugan from these accusations that he's a fascist, um, or that, um, you know, that, that he's, and, and, and what's interesting about the paper is he describes Dugan's view, but then he ends up saying like, basically he's making these arguments on what to me seem like technicalities to be like, see, he's not technically a fascist because he wants to go beyond fascism. And I'm just like, how is this an argument defending Dugan? It's just like, so like he does three things, right? So he says, um, you know, because fascism is actually a modernist view he can't be fascist. So calling him a fascist is stupid. I'm like, so like what matters is like what Dugan is actually advocating for, which is terrifying. It's not whether he sounds like a duck walks like a duck. Yeah. Whether he's technically a fascist or not. And people know that in the past I've kind of argued about how stupid it is, how like the term fascism can be just used pejoratively kind of like for anti-intellectual means. And like, I'm sympathetic to that. Like it's true. Like it makes more sense to see what Dugan is actually saying then just call him a fascist. But when you see what he's actually saying, it's fucking crazy. Okay. And then, and then the other thing that he does, um, which is kind of interesting is he says, you know, Oh, like people say that he wants a bipolar world and it's like, he actually wants a multipolar world. And it's like, okay, again, he's like, the whole paper is like fixated on little technicalities. But then my favorite one was, he's like, Oh, a lot of people say that he, he's trying to recapture some lost unity you know, it's like a retrograde conservatism, conservative view. But it's like, no, that assumes a unidirectional account of time. But really, Dugan <laughs> has a, uh, what does he say, has a synchronic 
view of time. So it's actually Ooh. like cyclical. Yeah, um, he's, he's so been if reading you, so if you understand Pauli. So if you understood that it's actually cyclical time, then you would see that it's his. you're wrong to say that he's retrograde I, because he wants to go beyond. So it's just like funny that he thinks that these arguments over like the kind of philosophical minutia are, is somehow like a substantive defense of Dugan. I mean, maybe I mean, he claims this is really just a defense of like read Dugan. So you understand what he's saying. And like that point, I would agree with. Like, if you want to know what he's saying, you should read him or spend a little bit like some time making an effort to read him but it's just like when he says oh he's misunderstood it's like okay all you're showing me is like a misunderstanding of these like little philosophical points but i think what people are actually interested in substantively is like what are the what's the way the world dugan wants what is the way that dugan wants the world to be and do we find that normatively appealing or not and yeah but isn't this kind of that's to me the bottom kind of what matt is doing here a little bit by exactly by saying that don't worry, don't worry, everyone. His arguments are inconsistent. But the consistency oh. we've decided is something that doesn't matter because if he has on his backing up his ideas, uh, the Russian army say, then it doesn't matter whether they're <laughs> consistent or not. That's no. fair. What, what I'm saying is that we shouldn't worry too much about it from a purely intellectual standpoint, who, ideologically. Who worries about anything from a purely intellectual standpoint? Yeah, I, I also want to say ideologically, what I think is terrifying is that I can completely see why this would be appealing. Uh, I also want to say that Mickelman, uh, Millerman himself seems to misinterpret Dugan because he didn't argue for a synchronic view or even a cyclical view of time, but a pluralistic view of time, right? There are many different ways of understanding time that are appropriate in many different circumstances, right? But oh. I mean, that's kind of pedantic in of itself. And I agree with what you said, Victor. Sitting there and defending uh, a fascist or a neo-fascist by saying he's not for race biologism and racial fascism and racial chauvinism, uh, but for ethnic chauvinism uh, and ethnic authoritarianism instead. It's kind of like, well, great. That'll ease me uh, when I'm terrified to sleep at night. Well, he's uh, also interested in, in in fascism in the non... Well, if it, in, in, if it is fascism, it's a type that is non-rational, right? Because, I, I mean, I do take... There is a substantive point to be made to say that, like, classical fascism is still a kind of rationalistic political theory right because it's like about rationally organizing the society along certain kinds of like you know collective goals with an authoritarian organization at the top and i think that he would be saying that dugan is not doing that because he opposes that kind of rationalistic reasoning it's a kind of irrationalist it's, it's a, yeah it's a kind of irrationalist uh way of, of or, with with mysticism and all that stuff right in that sense dugan is actually in some ways less innovative uh than the classical fascism and i mean that you know with big scare quotes because he kind of just wants to go back to the good old days of conservative authoritarianism when it comes to his domestic uh, approach to politics, whereas at least the fascists tried to innovate in their own kind of warped and evil way when it came to how to conceive the state and what the objectives of the state are going to be. Because one of the things that Dugan insincerely claims is that he's interested in experimentalism throughout the course of life, that he wants each nation state, civilization, empire to be kind of an experiment uh, and have its own viewpoint, have its own way of doing things. Uh, and that they shouldn't be interfered with. It's appealing to the old American democratic experiment there. Yeah, except my argument would be that he arbitrarily decides that they should only apply at the nation state or civilization level, but not to individuals. Because, of course, John Stuart mm. Mill would make exactly the same kind of argument that each life should be conceived as an experiment. Individualism is the best way to get the most kind of pluralistic viewpoints out there in the world. And Dugan says, no, we should have homogeneity. Uh, relative homogeneity at the nation state level because it's each nation state or civilization that's supposed to be an experiment 
not each individual, because that's decadent, materialistic, and a symptom of decline. And I also want to point out that this kind of Millsian viewpoint is very much in line with what Marx and a genuine socialist tradition argued. Uh, in the third volume of Das Kapital, Marx says that the beauty of a socialist society will be that for the first time in human history, the amplification of human powers will be an end in itself, not amplification for the purposes of production, but for its own sake, right? Uh, and that's what I would like to see, the amplification of everyone's individual human powers, not the amplification of the powers of a brutal authoritarian nation state that's invading its neighbor and won't even allow uh, the citizens of that nation state to express their own design uh, by criticizing people like Alex, or sorry, like Alexander Dugan and Vladimir Putin. Anyway. Dugan says the uh, individual is a social construct. Facts, bitch. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Doesn't he explicitly um, <clears throat> kind of prioritize... I think he uh, he explicitly prioritizes the collective over the individual. Yeah, uh, that's his sort of chosen level of analysis. Yeah. yeah, except it's it is really chosen, right? He just arbitrarily says at one point, uh, individualism is a social construct, which is true, right? You can talk about the invention of the notion of individualism from the 16th century onward. Uh, except songs. he says we will buy into any number of different social contracts, the nation state level, the civilizational level, but I'm not going to buy into individualism because of reasons, right? And it's kind of like too oh, liberal. Really? Yeah. Like what an argument. <laughs> He's really owning the libs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's uh, I kind of want to touch on something you said earlier, Pills, about because, uh, yeah, I mean, it was tongue in cheek when I said just become a liberal. Um, but I do think there's a but but I think it's interesting what you said. Uh, well, because t to be more interesting, uh, like that should be the goal. Uh, you know, I feel I guess what I would say about that is. Uh, you know, I, th I think what I'm seeing there is kind of like your artistic bias coming through, right? Uh, you know, I think when it comes to political, <laughs> like organizing a society um, politically, I don't know if people in their day to day life are really looking for things to be maximally interesting. I think they're looking for some consistency so that they get on can get on with their life and like <laughs> do the things that matter to them as opposed to, you know, the, them being surrounded by all this interesting stuff, eruptions going on all around them. I, you know, I don't know if the, most people want that. Yeah, I mean, and isn't it like the whole obsession with Dugan from for somebody outside of Russia would be like a product of modern technology, communications, and globalism, right? Because how else would you hear about this obscure philosopher from the other end of the world unless you had this global network in the first place to get that kind of information to you? And yeah, you're right. Mo People are concerned with consistency in their everyday lives and reliability and those sorts of things. So to become obsessed with this sort of thing, if you're not like a professional scholar or academic or political scientist to even pay attention to these sorts of things is is already a kind of, I don't know, a strange thing that seems to go against exactly what Dugan is saying. He's like, hey, let's, like, let's not be globalists, but you know, pay attention to what I'm saying, me, this person on the other side of the planet who you'd only hear about because of modern technology and social media. It's he He just kind of leans on things that are outside the text. I know I shouldn't say that there is an outside of the text, but there is one, and he leans on them heavily. That sort of thing, the globalism that he denounces. He also leans pretty heavily on conspiracy theories about globalist elites and stuff like that, and he, almost, he like owns that pretty much too. But I mean, it's there's a, there's a certain lack of of maybe trying to evaluate the purposes of of his project and what he's doing and you know the, the ideas are appealing yeah and like whatever but like what's the end game what's the end game for it all it's a kind of 
Russian expansionism, countering a NATO expansionism, neither of which are a good thing. But, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. I mean, I'd prefer NATO expansionism. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I get I get I the point about it know. being like imperialistic in its own way. But well, um, of course you prefer that to you for you because you're sitting in NATO. Yeah, yeah of I mean, course. Of why, course like, I do. What's but I also so good think about lining up nuclear weapons on the borders of countries that don't do business with us or that we do things we don't like? Like, that's not a great well, thing either. And I mean, I agree with NATO you. So, like, but, I mean, that seems like a step. So I think like, I think... I think I want to resist like I think there is some kind of like effort on some people's part to make kind of like a moral equivalence between like what I mean I'm not saying that you're doing that between like what like a Putinism is kind of trying to do versus like NATO I mean NATO in itself so there's I think there's it's important to distinguish between like NATO as a treaty as a defensive treaty versus American imperialism stuff that they did during the 20th century like invading and and installing puppet regimes that were like uh, pro capitalist century that's separate Okay, I mean, whatever. Recently, I'm just fuck yeah. Recently, they left. They left Afghanistan. NATO left Afghanistan like six months ago. I'm just saying there's a difference between like NATO as a defensive treaty um, versus like the stuff that America has done, kind of clandestinely. Well, you mean um, nominally, that, nominally defensive. I didn't say nominally. I did. Oh, I mean, it's nominally defensive. I mean, in the sense that there's not going to be like any first strike coming from from nato sure okay they won't shoot missiles first but they will rig your elections with well-funded pro-western candidates and then embargo the shit out of you if you have the audacity to elect anyone hostile to those western capital interests i mean even look at the the difference with what america and 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 the british did in world war ii right they like they pushed the nazis back and then they gave the countries back to the population what did the what did the ussr do they pushed in, they kept everything that they invaded. I mean, so there's just like two different ways of approaching, uh, approaching that, that and like one to me seems clearly morally better than the other. God damn. You got to give me some of your, what you're drinking. A billion dollars of, of Marshall plan money was given to the CIA, which were transferred to local law enforcement in Europe to just kill leftists. I mean, I'm not saying I mean, I'm not saying that, that that you know there's not things that are morally questionable. I just don't think they're the same. I think it's worth making the distinction between like what are the two tendencies of like whatever the former USSR and how they've handled their their form of imperialism versus like I don't know the NATO alliance which is kind of like uh you know a pseudo voluntary like capitalistic I mean obviously stuff that America did was not voluntary, right? That they were like you know influencing clandestinely um states but there's i just think there's there's a there's a difference there yeah i mean there's there's definitely a middle course to be run between all of this sort of you know everything with liberalism is rainbows and sunshine everything with capitalism is is fucking like atrocious and and disgusting for people like i mean there's there's certainly a a middle course to be run between those two things. And I don't think the answer to, you know, the world being in a really shitty state, rampant inequality, exploitation, and all that stuff, I don't think the answer is to just, like, jump ship onto some nutjob Russian mystics philosophy and start doing that sort of thing. I don't think the answer is that. No, but I mean, no, I mean, the fact that it's appealing shows you that there's a lot of discontent out there with the current status quo. 
That's true. I mean, I don't find it appealing at all, but maybe some people do. Uh, yeah. Maybe you you and Pills do a little bit. At least there's there's some mild appeal. Yeah. Well, he deals with he deals with ideas that I'm very familiar with, but it's 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 they they come in a form and a packaging that I'm somewhat unfamiliar with. <laughs> I guess you could say like I don't I can't just divine everything Dugan's about because he knows the same philosophers that I do. I have to I still have to read him and figure out what he's all about, how he's constructing his arguments and what they're doing, and then and then obviously the geopolitical context that they're sort of blowing up in right now. That's all important stuff that add to the texts too, right? Not the text isn't just this isolated thing you read and then you get these ideas from it. They're embedded in a context. Is what I'm trying to say. But it's it's difficult to it's difficult to evaluate just on the basis of his ideas alone, because a lot of them aren't really that new, to be honest. Yeah, and I think. You know, all these stories about NATO, this and I mean, yeah, sure. Some people you can interpret NATO expansion as a form of aggression. But I also think it's just as reasonable to to to, to believe that without NATO, a lot of these Baltic states would would all have kind of Putinist puppet governments. I, th I think that like NATO is a big disincentive from Putin doing his funny business where he, you know, assassinates people, uh, poisons people and installs um puppet government. So I can understand the incentive of a Baltic country or a Balkan country to be like, I want to be part of NATO because then Putin can't fuck with us. Yeah. Right? And you can't, you can't, I mean, this is part of the problem with the conversation about it too, is like you said earlier, jumping to causal explanations. Yeah. And I would add two justifications, right? Like NATO expansionism is obviously an important aspect of the history of setting up the conditions for this situation. But then people want to jump and say that's a cause or that's a justification of the situation. That's that's not good historian work then. You're, you're, you're leaving the realm of explanation and going into personal opinion, which is fine, but you know, it's not, you just got to be aware that it's probably incorrect and too more, much more complicated than that. Which is a shitty answer, but that's fucking life, right? If it ain't complicated, then it's probably bullshit. <laughs> There's no reason to think, I guess. Also, that argument is often premised on, oh, like if NATO hadn't expanded, then like Russia would just what be keeping to itself and not fucking with any of its countries like that clearly doesn't seem right to me. Like, like if NATO wasn't around, there's there's there, it just it seems at least as reasonable to assume that they would be just as incentivized, if not more incentivized, to fuck with their former Soviet countries. Well, the liberal, these liberal philosophers, like the, the, <laughs> the ones in the room here, they're just going to defend <laughs> the NATO status quo, whereas, whereas Dugin is going to defend the Russian status quo. But in the end, your opinions don't really make a difference to the situation in any case. You're just providing That's justification true. for one side or for the yeah, other. And I mean, it's just, it's also important to look at, you know, like countries from the global south and why they're so hesitant to get involved in the situation or or like openly condemn the Russian invasion. And it, it's not because they don't they don't think it's wrong. I mean, there is the cases where they're allies of Russia, like Venezuela. They don't. So they don't want to say anything to antagonize their friends. But there's also the important point where a lot of them feel that that the US led NATO and the EU and the United Nations, they all created this situation. It's their fault, not intentionally, but they created this situation and that they should take some response ability for it, right? And that they don't want to get involved because they see that this is part of some kind of US agenda. 
in order to, you know, save face after the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan or some other sort of thing, right? America perceiving itself, especially after Trump, as no longer being, you know, the world power. They're still kind of the world power, but, you know, not as much as they used to be. And this, and they, some people see in this situation just the kind of US led way of trying to gain credibility again. And they don't really want to be a part of that, especially if they have a history with the US fucking with them and extracting their resources and giving them nothing back kind of thing. And I mean, again, it's a complicated situation, but it's not, it's not, it's never been unipolar or bipolar in the first place. That should be the title of a book we write. We have never been bipolar or something <laughs> right. like that, right? <laughs> that would be a better title for a new Latorian book because I think this whole unipolar, bipolar, multipolar thing is- That's really what he wants, is, allegedly. kind of ridiculous. And it's, you know, you could read Guattari, get the same argument out of him. It's this left-right bipolarity is bullshit. We need more centers of political thought. We need more than just a spectrum that has two ends to it. And, you know, like we need, we need up, down, left and right and diagonals as well. Right. We can't have, and we, we do have that, but they're all organized around liberal or conservative. And then sometimes you add the other axes of power or truth, but that doesn't solve anything. But you, you get that same argument. Like, like I said, Dugan's ideas are not new. They're quite, some of them are quite familiar. But the packaging and the sort of way they're being presented is a lot different, I'd say. Well, the way they're being justified, right? Yeah. Is, is yeah, new. The, it's like, the uh, purposes, it's, it's how they're being deployed. I'm, yeah. Well, I don't know if there's any other philosopher who, because most people who use the philosophers he likes are obviously arguing for some form of like socialism or anarchism or something, something obviously more on the left spectrum. So I don't know if there's any other. Who, uh, philosophers who use the same and, and come up with a decidedly r uh, right wing, you know, kind of like authoritarian um, sort of like picture of the world that they want. Well, we haven't brought this up yet, but the thing that makes him philosophically the same as those people that you're you're talking about, um, Adorno comes to mind. But this uh, it's anti-Hegelian. Really, that's what saying we need multipolar or a, right. a pluralist time is saying right. is we want a, a non-Hegelian history and in, in, in Fukuyama fashion, the Hegelian history is one of eternal expansion of the neoliberal nation state embodied in this case by NATO. NATO country. Yeah. I think, I think what he does a lot better than Jordan Peterson is he, he, elaborates this eclectic base of ideas and areas of thinking, and then he kind of relates them directly and extensively to politics, which, which you know, Jordan Peterson is really dog shit at doing that. Yeah, I was, we, were complaining, we were complaining is, a few weeks ago about how boring Jordan Peterson is and how shitty his interpretations yeah, are. So here's it's, the, it's here's the interesting Dugan's one. good at it. <laughs> Dugan's just good at it. That's all. I also think that Peter, I'll also like to be, you know, I think, I think Peterson is a is is oh, a modernist. He's he's for the Western project. I think he's a globalist. Yeah, I mean, self-described you know, classical liberal. He's a he's a liberal. Like I don't actually think like yes, he has a conservative spin, but I think he's very much within the the mind frame of like the West is doing something important that needs to be spread to the rest of the world. Like I think he is a bit of a proselytizer for a kind of individualist, uh, kind of like so, kind of like neat like christian-esque sort huh, of like the private of individual 
the private individual. So ultimately he is like part of the modern Western project. And, um, and I think so. So in that sense, he's, he's quite, quite divergent. Yeah. I mean, I no, I think, I think the, you know, David Harvey gives a good intimation of what happened, you know, you know, the, in that, I mentioned this already, that comparison between the Treaty of Versailles and the humiliation of Germany is setting the stage for World War II. And then I guess, you know, after World War II, the lesson was learned and the penalties were not harsh like, like they were after World War I. That generation of politicians seems to have died out and not passed their knowledge on. And then after the fall of the Soviet Union, Russia was humiliated, excluded, treated as a basket case. The ruble went into hyperinflation. They were trading in vodka at one point, which is where all the jokes come from. And again, now we have this situation again where this humiliated, trampled on nation is again coming back for revenge with a more distorted, an even more distorted kind of ideology than the one that first was taken down. And so we have this parallel again between, you know, humiliation in the one hand and humiliation on the other hand. And, and humiliation is a dangerous political tool. It is very fucking dangerous. And we, and again, the same thing has happened to China, right? They've been humiliated, colonized by Britain, colonized by Japan. They have a deep memory. These All these humiliations are going to come back and fuck us over. And there's, you know, there's not much that we can do about it because the seeds were laid by a previous generation of idiot politicians who didn't, who didn't give a shit about what the next generation was going to have to deal with. And now we're dealing with it. I think that's an interesting line of argument that Harvey brings up anyway. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. All right. Well, we've been going uh, for a while. Are there any uh, yeah. quick, quick final thoughts? You know, how are you, you all, you guys feeling about the potential of nuclear uh, catastrophe? <laughs> <laughs> Another Chernobyl. It's back. Saying, the Cold eh? War is back. Yeah. Another anyway, Chernobyl. I, don't know. I was just. Large tracts of Europe going to be uh, uninhabitable. Are those NORAD bases still up? Like, or is Toronto is Toronto within range of an ICBM? coming over the North Pole. Uh, so Canada is not part of the missile shield. The United States does have a missile shield, which they they could potentially use. Um, but none of that actually matters because Russia has these hypersonic ICBMs that the current technology of America's missile shield can do nothing about. So if they wanted to, they could bomb any target in, in, in America. Yeah, and the, the missiles will go into space at an incredible speed and every it'll all be over in 30 minutes they would actually get to they would actually get to the united states from russia in less than five minutes that's how fast these I mean, nukes are we've all forgot but we do still live under mad right mutually assured destruction there's no that doesn't stop <laughs> i'd have to you know maybe i'm a little over exaggerating that but in my understanding is i minutes, think they're there no no they're like they're they're like 20 times the speed of sound these these hypersonic ICBMs. Yeah. I mean, it won't if if you know one side launches the nukes, the other side launches the nukes. They're they're all targeted already, so they'll just be everything will be destroyed. That's not that's not a way forward for anybody. The only the only real thing you could possibly worry about is if Putin sees he's losing, he might just be like, all right, well, I'm taking you all down with me. Ha! But uh, other than that, I mean, it's not a way forward until Toronto is nuked. Stay tuned. Every Friday, we put something out. And uh, why don't we wrap up on that happy note? On that, on that optimism. Yeah. And actually, I will tell you right now. So, uh, the, so the fastest ICBM uh, goes twenty four thousand kilometers per hour. 
Yeah, I mean, at this so that case, would take this at, case, more than just, an hour to get here. Well, are yeah. we twenty four thousand uh, kilometers from Russia? Probably. I would. I would put it at around that. What's the circumference of the Earth? I can't all of remember. our maps, because of the, be all quick. of our map projections, distort it, so it's difficult to tell because they're they're it's six thousand six thousand kilometers. All of our maps are very uh, Atlantocentric, so it would take two hours or three. No, it wouldn't. No, it would take way less. Six thousand. It's twenty four thousand kilometers an hour. It'd be here in like fifteen minutes. <laughs> oh, twenty four thousand. I was thinking twenty four twenty four hundred. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. No, twenty four thousand kilometers. So it'll what? be here in like. 15 oh, that's minutes. a lot. I was thinking twenty four hundred. Damn, so, that's a no. barely, quick. Barely enough time to put your coat and shoes on and get yeah. out the door. Yeah. No point. No point in doing it. Yeah. So what I are mean, you gonna do okay, when when the missile launches, Victor? Be just. Lib, you should have been liberal. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, <laughs> we should we should do an episode on uh, Doctor Strangelove. That'd be a yeah. fun one. Yeah. How to love it? How to wor- stop yeah. worrying? <laughs> I definitely am not worried. I actually find it more fascinating than worrying, to be honest. Which maybe means I'm I'm sick, but I find it just I'm, it's just so much more interesting than the stupid like uh, truckers or like vaccine protests. I'm like, finally something interesting is happening. No war, but the culture war. Yeah. I'm tired of being annoyed by things that don't actually matter. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, that's a good note to end on. All right. Cheers guys. Cheers Cheers. listeners. Goodbye. Later y'all.